welcome to the Philosophy of Psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 11. The Poorest Self. To Love and Mourn. There's a bit of terminological difficulties, but what's an ego, what's a self? And there's no simple answer to that because it, it depends on what kind of psychoanalysis you're talking about in very many ways. Because as you know from the papers on Guntrip that I gave you, he thinks we have this innate sense of self and that there's this authentic true self that it's our you know, purpose to discover in the course of life. Now, I'm not one of those. I don't think the self is a thing. And I certainly don't think we're born with it. I think that the most that we get are a set of views, in a sense, a sense of who we are. And I think that that's a result of experience with other people. In other words, I think that our intersubjective relationships, the relationship between one subject and another subject, are what create a sense of self. Um, and that's why it's important to watch who your friends are, in a way, because they really contribute to who you become, I think. Uh, I think we gain our sense of self from others and that it's not just that our friends maintain our sense of self, which they certainly do, but I think they're also in part the origin of our sense of self as well. So they both are the origin and the, maintain, the maintainers of a sense of self. So now we get to a very tricky notion, especially for someone like me who studies psychopaths, because the very notion of using someone has a very negative connotation, doesn't it? It sounds very negative, whereas actually being able to use another person is a good thing in psychoanalysis, especially for someone like Winnicott. So let me just talk you through that. Okay. So what I'm suggesting is that there can be forms of real intimate connection with another person. You can be quite interwoven in your sense of self with another person without this being a narcissistic connection where you see the other as under your control and not as a person in their own right. In fact, the optimal form of connection for a child, I think, is akin to Winnicott's notion of the use of an object. Okay, and I say for a child particularly. So what Winnicott suggests happens is that once we start to recognize that the other person is separate from us, and that's a developmental achievement, we, we initially feel quite fused with them and quite powerless without them, but once we get a little bit of confidence in ourselves and a little bit of confidence that they love us, we get to a, a really rosy little phase where we can use the other person without feeling an overwhelming sense of indebtedness to the other. Let me just give you an example. When I was doing my PhD, I had a friend who every time things would go badly for her, would come and have a big long chat, which I quite happily engaged in. And then she would buy me a present, sometimes an embarrassing present. Do you know what I mean? Like something that was way in excess of having had a conversation. And I was reading Winnicott, you know, not long afterwards, and I realized that for this person, she couldn't comfortably use me as an object trusting that I loved her and that I would 
use her when I needed her in the same way. She had to give me something straight away because she had an overwhelming sense of indebtedness and couldn't tolerate it and couldn't bear it. So that's one of those little markers. Um, So in other words, being able to use another person is a bit like Takio Doi's notion of a my, that you can cleave to the other, you can cling to them, you can be really close to them, but there's no sense of shame in needing the other person. It doesn't mean that you haven't got concern for them, so it's not like a psychopathic use of the other and you don't care if you wear them out. But nonetheless, you don't have to pay them back in the exact moment that you're getting something from them. So in other words, our connection to the other and our sense of self can be quite porous. You know, if you've got a a flower pot that's made of ceramics and it's not glazed and you sit it in water and it can soak up the water, that's porous. Well, in a sense, if I'm lonely and miserable and I go and see my friend and they, they make me laugh and they're kind to me and they remind me how fond they are of me, I can soak that up. In other words, I can have quite a porous sense of self where I get something from the presence of the other. But it doesn't mean that I'm narcissistically blurred with the other. I'm perfectly aware that this person is separate from me and I have concern for them and I don't necessarily wear them out. But I don't need to feel ashamed that I leaned on them or ashamed that I was vulnerable in their presence. And I don't need to feel so indebted to them that I need to give them money or a gift or pay them back immediately. In other words, I can be a little bit, you know, beholden to them, as it were, but life is long. I'll pay them back, you know, in similar ways later. So that's, that's the notion of the use of an object, and it's quite important. In the notion of an extended sense of self, which I think is probably more true of non-Western cultures and probably more true of women, but not I'm not saying it's totally you know, a female thing, I'm just saying it might be more true because of the way that we're socialised, um, then there are stronger implications of relating to others. So we're more vulnerable to others. We get more from others if we're porous, if we have an extended sense of self. And I I just want to highlight two ways in this lecture that I think are quite pivotal um, in all sorts of ways for traumatised people, for disadvantaged groups, uh, for groups that are suffering in various ways. Okay, so other people play powerful roles for us in that they help us to find words for what Christopher Bollas calls the unthought known, and I'm going to talk about that. And other people play a powerful role in allowing our feelings to form, which sounds unusual, but I've already covered that lightly. So here's the unthought known. So in a book called The Shadow of the Object, would you believe, by Christopher Bollas in 1987. He has a a beautiful opening chapter called The Unthought Known. And I'm fascinated in this for all sorts of reasons at the moment because of the kind of research I do, which is a kind of slightly cognitive science-y research about procedural memory. Now, procedural memory is an example of the unthought known. Like, you know how to ride a bike, you know how to tie your shoelaces, I know how to go into Arachandrasana. I don't necessarily know how to tell you how to go into Arachandrasana. I possibly never really thought about how you go into half moon pose in yoga, Arachandrasana. But I could if you were prepared to be bored stiff for 20 minutes of me telling you about outer heels, inner toes, inner thighs, etc. Okay, so anything that's implicit knowledge 
where you, you're quite capable of executing skills that rely on that knowledge, but you've never consciously thought it to yourself. You've never put it into words, never shared it with others. That's the unthought known. It's quite different from the repressed unconscious because there's no barrier to me boringly stiff you know, in 20 minutes to tell you how to go into half-moon pose. It's not like, oh, that would be such a shocking, terrifying thing. So it's not repressed in any way. Um, it's a kind of procedural knowledge. Now, a lot of what we've learned from being with our parents is of that kind. Like, I learned, my dad was a night shift worker. I learned very quickly as a kid to pick from his facial expressions whether it was cool to tease him or whether I should just make myself scarce, okay? Now, I, I don't think I've ever said that until this moment, but I really knew how to sort of stay out of dad's way in certain, you know, certain states. I also would know what kinds of ways of being with him when he was very tired would have worked and what ways might have been suboptimal, all right? In other words, a, a lot of my knowledge of how to be with grumpy others who are tired comes from that kind of pivotal early life experience okay now if i meet you and you're you've got that kind of look on your face i might be very careful around you but actually you're the kind of person that would love to be teased when you're tired okay that's exactly what gets you up out of that sort of slightly down grumpy mood but i'm not going to try that because my history has taught me that you go very gently with people who've got that facial expression that is the stuff of transference that is the stuff of transference. You've learned all sorts of procedures. You've got this vast area of knowledge that's never been in language, may never be in language. And you've never even consciously brought it to mind yourself. But nonetheless, it powerfully shapes who you are and it powerfully shapes how you negotiate with others. Okay? So when you get the chemistry right, when you fall in love, Sometimes it's that all that sort of procedural knowledge is just nicely meshed and in sync and you're wordlessly very at ease with each other. Okay, it can be at that level. Okay, so that's one way that others are, are very, you know, powerfully influential to us in that they might permit us to find the words for the unthought known. Like a therapist might sort of say, I notice that you're very pacifying of me when, you know, I, I'm frowning or something. And the, and the person might go, oh, I don't know. What would that be about? You know, and you might go, oh, okay. You know, I had to always, you know, make myself scarce when, you know, dad was fatigued or something like that. Okay. So that's, that's how they give you the chance to say, well, is that the only way that you could work? Or this might be not serving you well in your current relationship because it's a hangover from a past relationship. But you can't change things unless you can capture them in conscious awareness, I don't think. Okay. Yeah. The other way that people are powerful is in, they play a, a powerful role in how feelings form for us. So the example I gave you of the little girl reaching for the toy and, go, and going ah, like this and looking at the mother, do you remember? And the mother shimmying the body in exactly the rhythm of the child's joyous reaching for the toy. You've got attunement there. It's across different sensory modalities. But the little girl's going, ah, it's okay to feel joy and pleasure and my mother can see it and she's right in there and it's good and, and I'm separate and she's separate and she's got different pleasure from me but my pleasure is visible to her. Okay. In other words, the kid comes to know something about 
self and other, about feeling, about their own state, because it's being mirrored back in another register by the mother. The mother's not going, ah, and reaching for the toy first. She's, you know, just echoing what the child's doing in certain ways. So people who can mirror and reflect back your state can enable you to come to know what state you're in. And I gave you the example that my dog often knows that I'm anxious before I do. You know, if I see Tommy going like this, I think, okay, I'm obviously a bit anxious about today's lecture or something like that because he's picking up on it before I am. But he creates this kind of reflective loop in a sense where I can come to be more aware of my own state as a result of his connection to it. Now, another way that, that people can powerfully influence, influence the formation of your feeling is the nature of audience uptake that they give you. So, for example, if I'm extremely angry at the wrongs that have been done to my people, you know, I'm a, a, an Aboriginal Australian or I'm a, a, a First Nation person in America or I'm a, a, a former slave or something like that, and I want to express my anger, and the people go, get over it, it's history, you benefited out of it, get lost, okay? My anger has got nowhere to go and it can't quite fully form in a sense. So in other words, it's not just that the audience is there to receive your fully formed emotions, they're actually quite important in the very formation of your feelings sometimes. And it's a very powerful way to disempower another is to refuse audience uptake to their feelings. And I want to talk to you about that in a little minute. So when this role of others in the formation of feeling isn't optimally carried out, you can either get that going wrong within cultures or you can get cross-cultural difficulties because you don't recognise what's going on, you don't really speak the non-verbal language, as it were, of the other culture. Then what can happen is that people may harm themselves and uh, that's something that I, I find really fascinating. So Sue Campbell's work on the importance of audience uptake, she says, is that the only way you can actually come to know your own inner experience is if it gets the right reception in you out there. Okay, so the other person's got to be prepared to receive your experience. And if they don't allow you the occasion for your feelings to form, you're not going to be able to find words for what you feel. They've got to let that sort of spark leap the gap between you and them, as it were, before you can say, oh, yeah, I'm not actually just angry. It's, it's deeper than that. It's different to that. Okay, so, so the words to express experience may never arise if you can't actually get your experience out there in the first place. And this is something that I really can't underscore the importance of enough. If you're working with people, if you're working as a psychologist with people who are not suffering from repression but actually are suffering from trauma you need to work in a very different way with that um, you need to not be the one to leap in with an interpretation but you have to be able to uh, be there in a sense to allow the experience to form so that that person themselves can find the words to describe their experience because you may use words that are so emotionally strong that you re-traumatize them, okay? They may not quite be prepared to accept the full reality that you see 
But if you use your words, you may go beyond what they can tolerate and bear. So Bromberg's got this book. Bromberg sort of annoys me. I have to just <laughs> admit that. I read him all the time, but he kind of really irritates me in some ways because he's a bit of a guru. He's a bit of a, he's a New York analyst. He's a relational psychoanalyst. Relational psychoanalysis is winning the day at the moment in the psychoanalytic arena. And so they really they really pontificate, like, this is the way it is. And, and it just bugs me slightly. So I have to just be honest with you about that. However, I like him theoretically. I'm really interested in his theory. I, I think uh, it's got a lot to offer. And what he says is that if you've got someone who is traumatized, some days they'll be able to give words to things, and other days they won't be able to acknowledge what they said yesterday. They'll be in quite a different self-state. Now, what you mustn't do as an analyst at that moment is go, gosh, what you're saying today is really discordant with what you were saying yesterday, because yesterday you were saying X, Y, and Z, because you will it's like you're allowing electrical current to pass between two self-states, and it's kind of like the person's heart isn't ready to take the charge yet, if you know what I mean. So you have to stand in the spaces going, Yesterday they were saying they were lousy, good for nothing. Today they think they're the completely ideal partner and that, that it's they who are the worthless ones. And you have to just go, wow, <laughs> okay, here I am in the spaces between these two self-states. I'm going to hold that. I'm just going to be there. And the person might at some stage go, gosh, I seem to flick between really loving and hating that person, don't I? And you go, woo -hoo progress but they have to make the progress so you have to just be the occasion setter for them finding the words in a sense right so I know it sounds abstract but it is a different way of working okay so what I'm suggesting today is that permeability to others and interconnectedness with others is a matter of degree women might be slightly socialized to be more like that non-western cultures might be slightly more like that okay but I do think it's still the case, if you look at things like the DSM, that mental health is still judged by quite agentic notions of mental health. Autonomy, separateness, self-reliance, self-determination, very kind of Western capitalist, slightly Americanized notions of a sense of self. And it's quite difficult to sustain a notion that there can be non-pathological interconnectedness. I don't have dependency issues just because I really rely on my friends. Okay? In other words, there can be non-pathological interconnectedness. And so I want to explore the implications of this for well-being and self-harm, and also for how we view mourning and melancholia. Okay, there is a downside to interconnectedness. Um, Joseph Razor wrote a, a paper called The Dark Side of Kinship where he detailed the kind of terrifying self-harm that seemed to arise within Aboriginal people, <clears throat> excuse me, when they had been telling their stories round a fireside to people that really were part of their extended sense of self, and those others would not believe them. They wouldn't give them audience uptake. They wouldn't show proper feeling for the story that was being told. And he told a, a, a case study of a, a young man who, after being refused audience uptake in this way, 
left the fireside and went and put both arms through glass louver windows. Like, you can imagine the damage done to major arteries and things like this. So such an extreme response to not being believed and held in a particular way. So if you don't get that intimate interconnectedness that you really need, it leaves you vulnerable either to an attack from within, which is when something of your superego is biting chunks out of you, or to an attack which is in you out there, which is when your reference group doesn't accept your version of events with proper feeling. Like when your reference group doesn't accept your version of events with proper feeling. So the attack from within, I'm using an example from Rosenberg, who's a, a, an Australian psychiatrist who's done an immense amount of work with Aboriginal people. And he said that the situation of Aboriginal people can be that they may come to identify with the values of a dominant culture, you know, white capitalist Australia, in which their difference, what it is they've got that's great, is not prized and valued. So they may come to feel that they don't have the skills and abilities that matter, that the very things that really get you getting ahead in life are the very things that they don't have. And insofar as you've identified with those values of another culture that has a very um, negative view of you, you actually are beating yourself up in some ways. So if you're gay in a culture that doesn't prize being gay, or if you're feminist in a culture where feminism is a dirty word, it's very difficult for you, um, you know, to feel okay about yourself. This forms the basis of an attack from within, and that's what the superego can, can feel like. Okay. But there's also a, an attack from in you out there, and that's what I see as the, when there's a failure of uptake. It's not actually inside you, because it's your extended sense of self. You're telling this story fully expecting people to go, oh, that's so awful, how dare they? You know, ridiculous, wrong, terrible, you know, and they don't. They don't, they don't believe your story in a way, and their failure of uptake. And that's when catastrophic self-harm can follow, where the other person doesn't show proper feeling for your experience, particularly if that's experience that you're newly formulating in words for the first time. It's kind of like that experience can just go back underground in a sense. And so cat catastrophic self-harm can follow if there isn't audience uptake for one's sense of self as worthy of love and respect, or oneself as having a, a proper place in the community. Okay, so what are the theoretical implications of this? I'm arguing for the possibility that you can have an intact individual ego that's entirely intrapsychic and born of identification, plus a few drives. I'm going to keep the drives, if that's okay. Um, but your sense of self can actually be almost entirely extended. Okay, so in other words, I might have an ego whereby I know roughly, um, you know, what my hunger drives like. I'm pretty aware of what I need to do for temperature control. I know roughly what I like in in terms of um, soothing my own emotions, etc. Okay, so in other words, my ego is quite bounded, quite individual. Nonetheless, my sense of self might be something that is much more interwoven with my relationship to others and um, wouldn't necessarily fall into the narcissistic category if that's the case. 
So I suppose the question is, if Freud says in Morning and Melancholia that our ego is at least in part shaped by those that we've loved and lost, and if we don't really quite let go of the people that we've lost, does that mean that it's not just our sense of self that's extended? Do we actually have a different kind of ego in those people? Okay, and that's that's a question, a genuine question. I'm not saying, you know, there's one way to go or other. But I do think there are differences in the formation and nature of the ego. And I'm wondering whether or not this can have implications for how we theorize what we consider to be healthy mourning when somebody's lost someone. Okay, if we interject features of the lost other, if our identifications change the ego, do these bonds result in an extended sense of self? Okay, let's have a look at Joan Kirkby's 2006 article, The Work of Mourning. And I've got that online for you already if you want to read it. It's quite powerful. She really doesn't like Freud's take on mourning at all. She, and she's cool. She really takes him to task. She says, what do we take on of the lost object? Well, I love this because it's very much like what I've just been saying about the unthought known. She says it's not that you take on static attributes like the you know the color of their hair or or their you know the way that they um, had their uh, eye makeup on or whatever. What we take on board is dynamic engagements, their way of living, their animating principle, their kind of dialogue with the world. She says, in other words, what we take on board is kind of like their implicit procedural memory or the unthought known. Now here's Joan Kirkby's uh, take on Freud. She says Freud in his paper, Morning and Melancholia, is kind of saying, and this is my direct quotation from her, that in a sense the dead must be put to death again by our own hands. He does actually say that it's like as if we kill them off. Like if you search that paper, he does say that. On Freud's account, but in her words, this is not a quotation from Freud, the mourner must relive, then relinquish their attachment to the beloved severing the memories and images that tie them to the dead in order to reconnect with the world of the living. And she says, this is untrue mourning. So she really doesn't like it. She says she much prefers the Derridean account of mourning. Jacques Derrida, French continental philosopher, good or bad, some of you know, fantastic. I've read lots of them and I retain almost nothing, but I've done my bit. I've certainly read them. Um, in Derridean mourning, we honour the otherness of the dead, and our attachment to them, we do not abandon them and sub substitute another in their place, for the dead are irreplaceable. Okay, so that's a really different take on morning. Freud's saying, hypercathetic memories, let go, get the libido back into your own ego, then reallocate it to another object and get on with your life, okay? This person is saying, no way, the dead are irreplaceable, you can't substitute them. But she's not saying we should set up the other totally within ourselves. The other should remain other. But she says, quoting Derrida, mourning should be like a gesture of faithful friendship, the sublimity of a mourning without sublimation and without the obsessive triumph of which Freud speaks. So the obsessive triumph is that you sort of dismantled the other, you've regained control, autonomy, power. Okay, so Freud would say 
I'm pretending to ventriloquize Freud here because he's not here, obviously. Um, is this a wishful hallucinatory psychosis? That's what he would reply. He would say, Derrida, watch out, you're in trouble. You failed to accept the reality of the loss. And he says, you know, he would definitely see this as re reality testing being incomplete in some way because he would say, Perhaps there's a failure to accept the other as no longer existing. And he would say the person is frozen in time to some extent insofar as they are unable to find another love object. He's never saying you can find another one exactly like the person that you've lost. He retains uniqueness, but he's definitely saying you should get on with your life. And it's very Edgar Allan Poe, you know, not to quite be able to get on with your life at, at such a moment. But I'm suggesting that Mourning such bonds may superficially resemble the response to an ambivalently loved other. In other words, Derrida might look a bit narcissistic to Freud. Derrida might be seen to not quite mourn optimally, according to Freud. Because Freud would say there's not the acceptance that the other no longer exists. There's a more interjective response where the other is preserved more literally. And I suppose I'm saying, are these the only options? Do we have to either identify and split up the other and have the shadow of the object fall upon our ego? Or do we have to in interject the other and kind of encrypt them within our psyche in some ways? Are these the only options? They don't sound great. Well, I'm suggesting we can loosen this picture up a little bit. If we think, okay, if we've got a permeable sense of self, identification is more a matter of degree, the more we interject the other person and retain them as whole, the more permeable and extended our sense of self is. But in a sense, a permeable sense of self might arise from an object relationship, and this is my own language, that's poised between the psychic residue of a lost relationship and a relationship that remains in some way. And I'm not sure you have to really say that the relationship is gone just because the actual reality of the other as a physical object in the world is gone. We can still relate to that person through time when we remember them, as it were. I think that what I've tried to establish in this course is that women have got pretty emotionally permeable superegos, and Freud thought that was a bad thing. I don't think so. Um, and so I'm suggesting that Aboriginal people might also have a permeability both to other people, which can be catastrophic for them, but also to country. And I just want to sort of speak about that for a moment because I find it a really fascinating but strange concept. So what are the practical implications of working across cultures? Well, because there is an extended sense of self in Aboriginal cultures, as far as I can see, Knowledge flows along relational lines, and that certainly is the case in my experience. Um, in the West, if I say, what's your name, you would feel some obligation to tell me, even if I was a total stranger. If I was a bit of an unusual stranger, you might tell me where to go. But by and large, we tend to answer people. And in Aboriginal cultures, whether you get an answer or not depends on who you are. Do you have a right to ask that question? Do you have a right to be told the answer? So in other words, you've got to be the right kind of person to be allowed to get into certain flows of knowledge. And there are also quite important ways of showing proper feeling. And I read this really fantastic um, 
article by Diane Ede called You've Got to Know How to Talk. And I was so glad to find that paper because it changed my entire way of working in um, Redfern. One of the things that Diane Ede says is if you weren't at a particular event and you want to say, why are, are Violet and Jimmy um, no longer talking to each other, you won't necessarily get an answer because there isn't that sense that you pass on information about yesterday to someone who wasn't there. There is a sense in which, you know, you had to be there. There's also a thing where, and I found this very strange until I got used to it, you don't actually just ask questions. You have to hazard guesses. You have to offer something of yourself, and then they'll correct you if you're wrong. So instead of saying, where are you going on your holidays, I would have to say something like, are you going up north? And they go, no, south. Ah. Family, nah, friends. Holiday, nah, working. <laughs> okay? And in that way, I would, we would be exchanging knowledge, but I would be having to make, you know, some sort of guess before things would happen. So you had to hazard something of yourself as a bridge, and it feels very strange, but it totally transformed the kind of connection that I was able to make with people. And also what, what I found was that once I was known to be slightly goofy but somewhat reliable, and I was more part of the group. I was let in on a lot more knowledge. I was someone who was allowed access to certain forms of knowledge. So knowledge flows very much along relational lines. And so what you've got are soci socially permeable beings. You've got to watch because with Aboriginal people, it's quite possible for them to identify with norms that don't prize them. And that can be the basis of an attack from within as it can be with us, but also because there is this slightly merged sense of self, they're also very vulnerable um, to a, an attack which is kind of in you out there from failures of uptake. Now this kind of connectedness is not alien to us within psychoanalysis. Winnicott talks about the environment mother, he says there is no such thing as a baby, only a mother-baby field, okay, so he thinks that there's this kind of intertwining from birth. And Bolas is very open to the fact that the mother bond is not a thing. It's obviously a process. Well, what's interesting to me is within Aboriginal Australia, there is this conception of country, and each mob, as it were, or each group or skin group has its own country, which is both an area of land, but it's also land that's imbued with certain kind of symbolic meanings and dreamings and places where certain events are supposed to occur. So Jacqueline Rose says, people talk about country in the same way that they would talk about a person. They speak to country, sing to country, visit country. People say that country knows, hears, smells, take notice, takes care, is sorry or happy. Country is not a generalized or undifferentiated type of place. It's a living entity with a yesterday, today, and tomorrow, almost with a consciousness and a will towards life. So that sort of embeddedness is not just a social embeddedness, but actually powerfully related to land. So the disposition from your land is, is a very uh, different and powerful thing for Aboriginal people. So in Western conceptions of self, we extend ourselves out onto our land and often we control it by irrigation, etc. But in Aboriginal Australia, country extends into us and the sense of self quite literally includes others. And as I've, I hope I've shown, there are pluses and minuses to this. So the real world implications of an extended sense of self, your very self is hostage to audience uptake 
to proper feeling. And if you're making links to others that also themselves are already struggling, they may not be able to give you the kind of audience uptake that you so desperately need. So I suppose what I'm saying is that cross-culturally, we have to learn to be able to hold the experience of the other. And that's what I've tried to show you today, that there are quite real differences in the way that Aboriginal uh, people have conceptions of self and country. But also within cultures, when we have subgroups or reference groups who shore up our sense of self, we're actually quite vulnerable to them because of the power that they hold over us. So what I'm suggesting, just in finishing, is that the object, as in you out there, psychic residue, but still a relationship to something, is not necessarily pathological, even though if it becomes fully narcissistic, it, it can become so. Okay, thank you very much for your attention. That was Lecture 11 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.